0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest and in, how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 58. It's titled, Are ETFs and Indexing Becoming Too Popular? Before I get to that topic, I wanted to let you know I'm recording this episode about three weeks before it's released. Tomorrow, my family and I are heading to Scandinavia for vacation. So, as a result, episode 57, 58, and 59 have all been pre-recorded. When I get back from our trip, I'll record episode 60. I have no idea what the topic will be, but I'll certainly have some time to think about it. But let's get to exchange-traded funds, ETFs. They're marketable securities that seek to track a specific index or segment of the capital market, such as large company stocks, bonds, or commodities. There's over 1,400 ETFs, according to the Investment Company Institute. Now, the vast majority of those ETFs are passive in that they are index products. They're seeking to replicate a passive benchmark, such as the S&P 500 for U.S. large company stocks, the Russell 2000 for U.S. small company stocks. And so the first ETF was actually issued in 1993. It was a spider. The sponsor was State Street, and it passively replicated the S&P 500 index. That's its target. It's, It's still one of the largest ETFs in existence. Prior to 1993, investors that wanted to index their portfolio or passively manage a segment of their portfolio had to use an index mutual fund. Now, passive investing, indexing, we contrast that with active management where the the fund manager or the ETF managers, a few that there are, are actively trying to outperform a segment of the market through Security selection. Now, just to kind of give you an idea of the size of the ETF market relative to, to funds, the there's two as of May 2015. So May 6, there are there's 2.1 trillion dollars in U.S. domiciled ETFs. Now, ETFs are global, so they're, they're they're all over the world. But I'm, in this case, the statistics they have are for U.S. based ETFs. And about 55% of U.S. domiciled ETFs and exchange traded notes are domestic equity. That's their mandate. About 24% international equity focused, 20 or 13% or 14% domestic bonds. And then you get into smaller amounts, about 1% foreign bonds, 2% in inverse and leveraged ETFs. And later in this episode, I'm going to discuss some of the, the risk or, or issues with or potential systemic issues with leveraged ETFs, and then about three percent in commodity ETFs. Now, so total assets in ETFs about two point one trillion dollars. There are says sixteen trillion dollars in the U.S. mutual fund industry. So, in the past twenty years, ETFs have gone from zero to two trillion dollars. The mutual fund industry has continued to grow. So that's about sixteen trillion dollars in the open-end mutual fund industry, but how much of that is passive? And that that's what gets really interesting. According to Morningstar, when we take total ETFs and total mutual funds, back out money market funds, 27% of all assets are indexed. They're passively managed, they're in index funds or index-based ETFs. On the US equity side, that's gone from 17% passively managed in 2003 to 35% today. So 35% of assets are in index funds or in ETFs within the, those that are focusing on the US equity market. Within the international equity space, that's gone from 8% passively managed to 31% passively managed. And then on the bond side, it's gone from 6% to 2003 that were passively managed. Now it's roughly 19%. And so that is, a, in my mind, a sizable percentage. The question is, what does it mean? Now, is there a point? I mean, the, the, one, one school of thought is that well, when passive gets so large, then that's when active managers will be able to outperform passive, and, and there'll be a switch. But active managers have done such not not a stellar job as a group outperforming the market. But what I want to show you today, some some academic studies that show, you know, when we say the market, the market is generally speaking value-weighted or capitalization-weighted. So the largest companies within the U.S. market or the international market by market capitalization. And market capitalization is the price of a particular security or stock times the number of shares outstanding. And so Apple is a very, very large market capitalization. And then you have those that, that are smaller. But the, these index, these market is weighted by the size of the company. One of the, the nuances of that is it can get somewhat concentrated in the top holdings. Because in in today's world, the biggest of the big are so much bigger than the median or average stock Within the universe. And there's a study I'm going to share with you that shows you know, one of the challenges with how that is set up. Now, ETFs, about $2 trillion, so very, very large. Now, ETFs differ from mutual funds, including index mutual funds, in that mutual funds trade at the, after the market closed. So you submit your buy order for a mutual fund during the day or your sell order. It's not until after the market closes when the mutual fund sponsor calculates the net asset value of the fund and then they issue shares or reduce the number of shares. And generally speaking, the market price of the mutual fund equals the net asset value. And all the net asset value is, it's the value of of the fund's assets or the ETF's assets, less any liability, divided by the number of shares. And that's the definition of net asset value. So that's how the mutual fund industry has worked in terms of open-end mutual funds, trade at the end of the market day. And so you don't have any deviation between the market price and the net asset value. ETFs, are are very different in that sense. They trade on an exchange like stocks. So they trade throughout the day. And because of that, because the, the market price of these ETFs fluctuate based on supply and demand, the ETF's price, its market price, can differ from the net asset value. And that's what's so unique about ETFs, this mechanism they've developed to make sure to try to keep that market price in line with the net asset value. The way the ETFs do that is they publish throughout the trading day, anywhere from every 15 seconds to every 60 seconds, the net asset value of the fund. And so they they look at the value of all the assets, they divide it, they back out any liabilities, they divide it by the shares outstanding, and that is the net asset value. And so then market participants are able to say, right, here's the market price and here's the net asset value. If there's a different, there is an arbitrage opportunity. The way that it works is investors can buy or sell short the ETF. And by sell short, that means investors will profit when the security security falls in price. And so they either buy the ETF or they sell the ETF short. And then at the same time, they're either buying or selling the underlying securities that are held by the ETF. And by doing these in tandem, they essentially create a hedge position. And so they can wait for the price of the ETF, the market price, and then an asset value to converge. And and all these these arbitragers – are they kind of taking advantage of. And they can earn, essentially, a risk-free profit. And so that's, that's the mechanism for keeping the, the discrepancy between the NAV and the price very, very narrow. And in most normal market environments, that process works. We'll see in a few minutes that there are potential times when it doesn't work, and that leads to a potential risk with ETFs. Now, again, with mutual funds, at the end of the day, you have all the buy and sell orders. They, they net those. And then if there needs to be new mutual fund shares created, the mutual fund company creates the shares. That's not the way ETF works. The ETF sponsors work in tandem or in cooperation with institutional traders and market makers called Authorized participants. And here's how these new shares are created. Each day, the ETF publishes a list of securities and their weights called the creation basket. And that represents securities held by the ETF. And then throughout the day, or even at the end of the trading day, an authorized participant can buy go out in the market and buy this basket of securities this referent basket the creation basket and they deliver that basket to the ETF sponsor and then the and the sponsor then transfers new ETF shares to the authorized participant at the same time or it can work in the reverse the ETF or the market maker the authorized participant can take ETF shares that they own and go to the ETF sponsor and trade them for the reference basket of securities. Now, these newly issued and redeemed ETF shares are called creation units. And they typically, they're very large blocks. So twenty five to, to 250,000 ETF shares. And so these are, these are very, very large institutional traders that are working with the ETF to either redeem or create new ETF shares, and and these these authorized participants often are they they have clients themselves, and so they're seeing the demand for the ETF, or they might be making a market in the ETF, and so that's that's why they're working with ETF sponsors. Back when I was with my my prior firm, the investment management product that we ran, we invested in. ETF. So it was a, a strategy where we were tactically allocating using ETFs. And there were times that we would work with these authorized participants to have newly created ETF shares created essentially so that we, we could manage them. So that's the basics of how the ETF market functions. Now when we compare that to mutual funds, mutual funds trade once per day, at the end of the day, and then the fund manager, as they take in more cash, they might go out and buy more shares of of the particular stocks that represent the benchmark that they're trying to track. With ETFs, all that is happening during the day. The creation uh, of new shares as authorized participants buy baskets of securities and then Transfer them to the ETF sponsor, get new shares, and then you have all this arbitrage activity as you're, they're trying to keep that discounted premium to NAV, the net asset value, very narrow, very very narrow. The result has been: academic studies have shown that all this trading in these securities to create these underlying securities to create the ETF or to hedge as arbitrageurs try to. to Earn risk-free profits has significantly increased the volume of trading, but more importantly, the volatility of the underlying index. So the S&P 500 index, U.S. large company stocks, is now more volatile because of exchange-traded funds than it was prior. And the underlying holdings are more volatile because you have all this underlying activity. On the surface ETFs seem very very simple. You go out; it's a very in a, inexpensive way to get market exposure. But underneath, there's all this activity to keep the wheels working. And in a normal environment, it works very very fine. The academic, one academic study, and I'll list, the, I'll refer to it, or I'll put it in the show notes. It was recently done. It's called "Exchange Traded Funds and Market Volatility: The Case of the S and P 500." It was by Lao Zhu and Zhang Kan Yin of La Trobe University in Melbourne. And this just came out in the last few months. And they've looked at, they, so they, they reviewed a lot of the literature regarding volatility or increased volatility because of ETFs. But they, then they focused specifically and showed how the SP 500 index is more volatile because of the presence of ETFs. Now, in a normal environment, Everything works very, very smoothly, but there can be a time when during market turmoil and extremely high volatility, that liquidity, the ability. In other words, an arbitrager can only take advantage of the deviation between the price of an ETF and the NAV if they can get the securities that are Available or held by the ETF. They need to be able to essentially replicate that creation basket. But if the ETF holds, let's say, less liquid securities, and particularly in the bond space or very, very, let's say, smaller cap stocks, where there's friction in terms of their ability to get access to the underlying holdings, that can result in the discount or the premium of the price of the ETF to its NAV, to widen dramatically. And in an extreme situation such as May 2010, where there was a huge disconnect between the NAV and the share price. 20% of ETFs during that that May 2010 flash crash lost more than 50% of their value in a matter of minutes before rebounding. That was a huge, this was according to Morningstar, a huge disconnect. And so when we talk, and you know, we talked about in episode 55 and 56 about fragility and how complex systems can show elements of fragility because of how interconnected everything are. Things at risk, You know, what looks to be stable underneath has potential risk lurking there. The ETF market is like that in that there can be disconnect because you need these authorized participants. You need these arbitragers in there being able to buy the underlying securities. And if liquidity dries up, particularly on the bond side, let's say, a lot of the the bond brokers or dealers have much lower inventory. And so there needs to be liquidity in the underlying holdings of ETFs in order to keep the discount or premium of priced NAV very, very narrow. And so that's one of the risks of ETFs. Another concern about ETFs is these leveraged ETFs. There are, now it's still very, very small, but you can buy an ETF that promises to replicate two or three times the return of a particular market index. Or they could they they'll do two to three times the inverse of the market index. Well, the way that these ETFs work, these levered ETFs works, is they need to buy, they use future contracts or other derivatives to get that market exposure. So there could be a futures contract on the E-mini S&P 500 contract as an example. Well, in a period of market turmoil, as, as the market falls – these levered ETFs have to reduce their exposure, have to rebalance their market exposure. In other words, they have to be selling out or closing out some of their futures position. And at the same time, if you have authorized participants trying to redeem shares because they see less demand for the ETF, that requires these levered ETFs to to lower their exposure even more and delever even more. That can actually, in theory, exacerbate the 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 market turmoil or the sell off. And so in, in a normal environment, levered ETFs work fine. But we're we're looking at extreme events where you have a a huge amount of fear in the market. You have you have investors rushing into the exit. You potentially don't have the liquidity in the underlying shares and that was one reason for the, the flash crash. It was that lack of liquidity. Now there's there was other things involved there and this is not to say that ETFs are dangerous, but it is important as investors we recognize that there are risks with ETFs that are lurking below the surface. And we need to scale our exposure to, to recognize a flash crash can occur again. Just like all markets can sell off, you, we could have a situation where ETFs dis- disconnect significantly from their Net asset value. Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. Quick math the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. With everything getting more expensive these days, it's wise to find ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. You can do that with NetSuite. And by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash david. That's NetSuite.com slash David. NetSuite.com slash David. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Now let's get back to this question of indexing or passive management. The other day I was searching the, I think it's called the Social Science Research Network. And that is an archive of all types of academic papers. And I was looking for papers, the latest research on ETFs and indexing. And I came across a paper that came out earlier this year by Mosh Levy. And I'm not sure if I pronounced his first name correct or not. He's a professor of finance at the Jerusalem School of Business, Hebrew University. And he had a paper titled, It's easy to beat the market. Now, that caught my attention. And what he did was he he was not saying that active management was the way to do it. What he was saying is when we talk about the market or the market portfolio, which I mentioned are generally these capitalization-weighted indices where you have the largest companies having a significant weight within the index, that that is flawed. And here's what he did. He took a window of time from 1926 to 2014. And he drew 100 random five-year time windows. So he had 100 five-year time windows. And then for each five-year sub-period, he created 10 random passive portfolios drawn from the top 500 stocks. And these are U.S. stocks. So the same stocks in the S&P 500, he created these random portfolios. They were very, very diversified, but they were not capitalization-weighted. They, they had random weights, and, and there were 500 stocks in each portfolio, just like in the S&P 500. And then they were buy and hold. So once the portfolio was created, he let the winners run. And so it was completely passive approach, but it was not – value weighted or capitalization weighted. What he found was that these random portfolios outperformed the market about 70% of the time. Now that's huge. Now he, he calculated a a sharp ratio. Now by by outperform it wasn't by a lot. So for example, the average monthly return for his portfolios was 1.01%, and the average standard deviation was 4.77%, the average monthly standard deviation. So that, that was kind of average, 1%. The average return for the market was 0.93%. So he, he beat it by about 0.08%, or eight basis points. And the standard deviation of, of the market itself was 4.8 percent. So very, very similar volatility, but the random portfolios, the ones that were not capitalization-weighted, outperform the market. And his conclusion is, when we we talk about the market, that you have a case where Apple, at least back in July 2014, its market capitalization was $571 billion dollars. 100 times larger than the weight of the smallest company in the S&P 500. And the top 10 largest companies in the S&P 500 index account for 17% of the total S&P 500 capitalization. The top 20 make up a quarter of the S&P 500, or 27%. And one other statistic, the largest firm in the S&P p 500 is 68 times larger than the median S&P 500 firm. And, and this is the risk uh, of indexing or passive management is that as more and more assets go to indexing, a larger and larger percent gets pushed into the biggest of the big cap companies. Now this particular study shows that if you don't do that, you can actually add additional value. Now there, there are what is called fundamental indexing that Rob Arnott at Research Affiliates, he did a lot of, of research and they have indices that are not cap weighted in terms of their weighting, but they'll weight by revenue and other book value, other metrics to try to to get rid of some of this cap weighting because their concern, is as more assets go in, that can push up the value of the largest companies in the index. My concern is, yeah, with so much involved in indexing, should we, is there an opportunity to somehow outperform the market? Now, Marsh Levy showed a way to do that, and I haven't quite found the answer yet. I mean, one one way to do it is to use an equal-weighted ETF, where if you're buying large company stocks, they're they're completely equal-weighted. I take Guggenheim in the U.S. has some ETF structured this way, but the expense ratio is is a half percent, so so 0.5 percent. So that that potentially could outweigh the benefit of not capitalization-weighting your portfolio. I know back in the late '90s, early 2000s, when I had clients clamoring. To index and and move from their active manager into the S&P 500 index, I was concerned about the valuation of the biggest of the mega cap stocks. And for those clients, I actually paired the S&P 400 index with the S&P 500. So I put 80% in the S&P 500. I put 20% in the S&P mid cap, and that brought down the average capitalization And that strategy combined did very, very well and outperformed the SP 500 over the next five to seven years. And so you can get these periods when active management does better, but that tends to be the period when mega cap stocks, those largest companies, start to underperform the average stock in the index. And and potentially we will have that. Again, when you look at the flow of passive, the increase into passive management, it tends to peak at market tops. And so back in, in 1999, there was a, a huge peak and huge inflows into passive investing. We saw it again in 2008. And now, again, you're seeing there was over $200 billion went into passive ETFs. And, and funds in the last year, the same amount in 2013. I don't know how it's going to end. And, I, and this is this is a an episode where I'm not sure what the solution is, but I am concerned that 35% of U.S. equity assets are passively managed. And we could get a reversal of that. And by reversal, particularly when you align it with or you combine it with some challenges with ETFs in terms of if there's a lack of liquidity, and market turmoil, is it possible that these passively managed passively managed vehicles will suffer more than perhaps other more active strategies or quasi-passive strategies such as fundamental index or equal weighting, et cetera? So it's a question I'm continuing to look at. Again, I don't have an answer to it. It's something that I will certainly discuss in more detail on the Money for the Rest of Us hub and perhaps in follow-up episodes. So that's today's episode. You can get show notes at moneyfortherestofus.net. That's also where you can sign up for my Insider's Guide. I'll email those show notes to you weekly. That's where I'm answering listeners' questions. And if you want to cover these topics in more detail and want to get a better sense of what investment conditions are now so you can adjust your portfolio based on market conditions, perhaps even going into different types of non-capitalization-weighted ETFs. You can learn more about that on my premium membership site, moneyfortherestofushub.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode is for general education only. I've not considered your specific risk profile. I've not provided investment advice, simply general education on money, investing in the economy. Have a great week. If you want to follow me on Instagram, see some of my pictures of Norway and Sweden. My Instagram name is at JD Stein. Have a great week.